Right, so uh, Akash will be talking about operational risk today. Now, if I remember correctly from my studies, operational risk is defined as uh, the loss due to inadequate processes, systems, and people, or something like that. So it almost includes everything. And um, I think if you look at some of the major corporate failures, can be, be pulled through to, to uh, operational risk failure. So it's, it will be interesting to, uh, to see what Akash has for us today. And uh, Akash is from, from, from Barclays, and we've got more and more actually working in the banking space. Some of you probably attended the banking seminar earlier this year, you know about the banking, the banking fellowship that just been launched. So um, yeah, I, I also see opportunity for, my, for a lot more action in this space. So just a bit about Akash. Akash is the, the current head of operational risk for Barclays Africa. He spent 20 years in various risk finance and audit roles, largely within the financial services sector. His experience stretches over a number of markets in Africa, Europe, and the Far East. In his current role in Barclays Africa, Akash oversees the firm's enterprise risk management framework, operational risk policies and standards, the operational risk capital model, and advises senior management and the board on the operational risk profile, including investment and remedial responses to ensure that it remains within appetite. Akash is passionate about developing the risk management discipline in Africa, particularly in universities and at entry level into organizations, and in his free time, he enjoys traveling and experiencing different cultures. So that's quite a mouthful, and uh, how would you next Okay, thank you very much. Can you hear me? Right, okay, good. So interesting discussion on also and from an enterprise risk management framework, a lot of overlaps and similarities. So um, uh, one thing to get off the table, our um, uh, ERMF framework um, in Barclays is heavily banking focused, and Edward, our wealth investment management and insurance uh, chief risk officer, um, currently doing a lot of work in tailor-making that for that business. So he's a global owner of our insurance risk management uh, framework in our businesses, uh, but uh, it remains heavily uh, banking-focused. Fo uh, and from what I was listening to in the uh, previous discussion, uh, I think our non-banking businesses have benefited from an operational risk perspective on some of the more established uh, banking uh, disciplines. So uh, from a... Um, ERM, ERM perspective, we've got a fairly simplistic um, uh, risk management process and, and steps. Um, um, very uh, conveniently, uh, it's also titled ERM, so evaluate, respond, and monitor. And as I said, very easy. Uh, under the evaluate step, um, we identify and assess our risk. Okay? We normally look at the uh, risks that have the most significant impact on our businesses, either from a probability or likelihood and, uh, and strategic impact perspective. Uh, the response steps looks at remediation, uh, remedial actions, or risk investments, or just avoiding risks altogether or changing our business strategy. And the monitor steps looks at um, uh, ongoing review of our risk profile, business performance, risk performance, um, losses, uh, control performance, etc. And it's closed loop. So clearly for our profile, is moving out of appetite and getting too close to appetite. We need to look at whether we have identified all the risks, our risks have changed, our responses are no longer adequate. So fairly simplistic. And I'll, and I'll go into not too much depth because I know this is not an operational risk practitioner 
conference around how operational risk uses a three-step process uh, in Barclays. Uh, so this is what I'm going to cover. What is uh, operational risk, how we manage it, and current, some of the top current and emerging risks um, uh, within the uh, banking sector. And a lot of it overlaps clearly with the wider financial uh, services sector. So the uh, MC is uh, fairly close right? <laughs> in his definition. That's a Basel definition of operational risk. Uh, it's now being used more widely across financial, uh, service, uh, financial services sector. but even outside the financial services sector in some of our retailers uh, as well. So it's very vague and high level is from human factors and failed internal processes and systems, et cetera, and external factors are intentionally vague because anything can cause an operational risk in an organization. Every employee, every um, activity, every system, um, and, and even externally, every customer, every supplier, every regulator, uh, so intentionally broad, uh, there's no easy way to get more precise uh, in a, defi a definition. Um, it's a discipline that um, uh, has very simple concepts but can get very complicated in execution uh, given the nature of, of operational risk. Uh, so let me get straight into how we manage operational risk. And a, a lot of this uh, terminology may seem unique to our organization, but the concepts are consistent across the uh, banking industry. Right. Uh, and it's consistent with the expectations of our regulators and uh, sound principles of uh, operational risk management um, as published by the Basel Committee. So uh, I've again split it up between evaluate, respond, and monitor, so ERM. Uh, very importantly on the side is a tone from the top, and our previous speaker spoke about that. Uh, so it's ownership from senior, senior management and our board, uh, it's uh, the culture within the organization, and in between how the tone from the top goes into the tune in the middle, right? So uh, in many uh, organizations where I've spoken to senior management or board members, they say all the right things when we talk risk management, but when we talk business performance, uh, and those kind of priorities around revenue, et cetera, go into the organization, the tune from the middle is something totally uh, difference. So you can have very good narrow conversations, but it's important to have very good broad conversations with a wider uh, population. And I'll touch later on culture and conduct risk um, uh, later in the presentation as well. So uh, under evaluate, uh, these are the most common methods used to evaluate operational risk in a typical organization. A risk control self-assessment is exactly what it says. Uh, businesses identify their most the key risks, okay, and uh, the method used to mitigate risk in that process is purely controls. Okay? Clearly, there are other methods used to, uh, to manage risk, but in that process, it's controls. Uh, this controlled testing and assessment that is done, and very easy. Effective, we okay. Ineffective, there's a response. So either change the design of the control or ensure that it's, um, if it's an operational problem, then we fix an operational problem. Uh, and that's a simplistic definition. Right? <laughs> gets more, again, as I said, it gets more complicated uh, in execution. So there's some simple questions. So at what level do you fetch a risk? So if, if, I, look, if I looked at two um, global banks uh, in Europe, okay, similar size and scale, similar types of products across similar markets, etc. Uh, we, we had a look at a conference in the UK at their risk and, risk and control self-assessment, so their RCSAs. One had 100 risks, 
in their RCSAs. The other had 16,000 risk in the RCSAs. And I guess it, it depends on what you want to achieve out of it. So if the audience for the of your risk control self-assessments are boards and executive management, right at the top, you focus on risks that keep them awake at night. Right? If the audience of your RCSAs is middle management, guys that manage the businesses day to day, etc., probably going to have a lot, a lot lower level of, of, of risks um, in your RCSAs. A mistake that many organizations uh, make is trying to have a one-size-fits-all approach, and it gets stuck somewhere in the middle, and it doesn't actually meet anyone's, anyone's requirements. So um, like clearly the way uh, risk control self-assessments are done, or should be done in many organizations, it's at a process level in organizations. You understand your business critical processes, uh, normally end-to-end, -end, that's a preferred route. Uh, agnostic to the structure of an organization, so you might want to understand the you know, entire customer take-on process, or the claims management process, or in finance, the entire reconciliation process, etc., and, uh, and, and pull out the risks that could have a most material impact on those processes, and line to that, the controls as well. Uh, one of the reasons to do it at, an, at a process level, rather than coming up with a genetic library of risks that are this populated everywhere is that you can also focus on um, efficiency of the process, uh, customer impact if you make certain decisions of putting controls, um, and uh, there's a focus on getting the balance right between preventative and detective controls. Uh, and you can also isolate the cost of control as well. Um, in, in when I look at the way RCSAs uh, are done in organizations, uh, when it's done on an end-to-end -end and on a couple of pilots that we, we've, we've done, we've managed to reduce the number of controls in a typical process by about 40%, but fewer controls, but more controls, uh, more, more control, generally speaking. So it has huge uh, cost implications depending on where you pitch it and how you, uh, you do it. Uh, RCSAs are normally done at a point in time, maybe twice a year, so uh, very lag in nature as a risk management process. Uh, it, it's a fairly extensive activity, so it cannot be done uh, more frequently. Uh, it may be done when, when there's a material change in the business and you want to reassess your risks and controls. But normally, to complement RCSAs, we also, most organizations also use risk metrics as well that are um, more near uh, real-time, um, certainly looked at more frequently, sometimes multiple times a day or daily, certainly not less frequently than monthly. Uh, and examples of, of risk metrics, on different risk types, uh, maybe on technology, um, system uptime as a, uh, as a percentage, so probably in your tier one systems you'll want 99% um, uptime, tier two systems maybe 95 on people risk, maybe vacancy rates and turnover rates, um, on core business transactions, error rates, uh, or timeliness of processing, etc. So you could come up with a number of metrics to actually look at risk in a more real-time basis of organization, clearly with thresholds that say what's within the outside of, of uh, applied. So currently in Barclays, across all our risks, we actually have uh, around 100 and 60 metrics that we monitor on an ongoing basis that covers all our uh, um, major risk types. Whereas uh, RCSAs are normally done at a, at a process level within businesses, most metrics are normally done by risk type. So um, 
depending on the taxonomy of uh, risk that you may have. We touched on scenarios in the earlier presentation. Uh, we currently use scenarios for more extreme events. So the first two, day-to-day, -day, business as usual management. Uh, on scenarios, we normally look at one, one in five, one in 10, one in 20, 25, and possibly one in 100. Um, so it's a more, more extreme impact, uh, lower probability, but very plausible risk. And, and relevant examples, uh, for example, is um, electricity blackout in South Africa. Added in one in 25, now it's like a one in three. Right? <laughs> um, uh, a pandemic in some of our markets outside of South Africa, very real. It's an extreme risk, but plausible. Right? And the probability moves uh, as we get more information. Um, a data center going down through a terrorist threat, as, as an example. And there's uh, various ways in which, uh, uh, under respond actually, that we can uh, uh, actually respond to those risks. We may decide to try to manage those risks better. So, for example, in a data center scenario, beef up our disaster recovery site or not put everything in a single data center. There's ways to actually manage those risks in a, in a total. Uh, power blackout scenario, do we shut down the banking system and bring it back up to manage that risk uh, appropriately? And when do we do that? Do we do it after most likely 24 hours or 48 hours of total blackout throughout the country? So those are the kind of decisions that we need to make on a respond on, on scenarios. Currently, amongst uh, the major banks that are an advanced measurement approach for capital purposes, all of them use scenarios as um, a key input, and the bulk of them are using scenarios as only input, right? With, with lost data and other data points informing these scenarios and not going directly into um, our capital model. Uh, strategic risk assessment is a tool we use to focus exclusively on execution risk. So business objective execution risk is normally done uh, at our strategy setting, as part of a strategy setting process on we'll, or when we uh, look as an organization on how well we've execute, executed the strategy, uh, normally just after a year and when we need to explain the results. And, and the type of risks that we look in there are, are very explicitly aligned to our strategic objectives. So for example, uh, many financial services industries want to migrate customers from bricks and mortar to digital channels and execution risk in, is the ability to deploy technology platforms. Or, and all our financial services uh, companies in South Africa are looking to expand um, the rest of Africa into multiple markets. And execution risk is potentially um, uh, not getting approval from regulators in, in those countries. Right? Or, so there's various types of execution risk that may not be very explicitly captured anywhere else in our, in our risk management process and therefore needs to be looked at um, uh, separately. Uh, from a response, I've, I've discussed that to an extent, so uh, we can either respond by making investments proactively in risk management, but if we don't, then we'll have to fix it when something goes wrong. <laughs> Obviously, the preference is to, to invest uh, upfront. On risk events, those are, are significant losses, uh, significant non-financial impacts of an issue arising. Uh, and the response there is um, very importantly, if you want to test whether your risk management framework is working is that you learn from your lessons. For risk materializes in one part of the business, especially if it's an 
operational risk, it's very likely that that risk is relevant to the rest of the organization. Right? Uh, technology, people, um, payment type risk, uh, physical security premises is relevant to an entire organization. You make a mistake once. Huh? <laughs> right? You don't make a mistake twice. Uh, uh, very important, and we spend a lot of time on lessons learned, and it's hugely value added to, to understand whether a particular event or an issue we pick up on one part of the organization is pervasive or not. Right? And, and that's uh, fairly understated in many risk management frameworks, possibly one of the uh, high value adds. That's very, very simplistically and easily uh, implementable in organizations. And finally, monitor is when we continuously monitor the profile against appetite. And monitoring the profile is business performance, risk performance, losses, events, control effectiveness, how our metrics are performing. And it's a closed loop, so if you see something, profile deteriorating, or moving in the wrong direction, we need to go back, as I said before, and look at whether we've identified all the risks or our responses remain appropriate, etc. So it is a closed loop and overlaid on the tone, tone from the top. And, and that's critically important. If you don't get that right, this stuff on the right-hand side is really not sustainable. Uh, so moving on to um, away from framework elements and to what's really impacted. So today's operating in environment, nothing too um, surprising any. I'm sure most of you I've seen this and I would agree with this. So technology advances has always been there. It's just happening very differently nowadays at a much faster pace with much more severe impacts if, you, if you're not with the game. Our customers want to be always, um, everyone is always on and connected, except, except you, I don't see uh, getting a signal in this room, but generally everyone is always on and uh, connected and the power is going to the individual and to the customer and they want to do things themselves and they want to do it 24-7 not from eight to five, and we just need to change the way we operate in financial services, and that changes the way we manage uh, operational risks. Uh, uh, very frequently, we are getting calls at 10 on Saturday night saying that some of our systems went down on fraud, et cetera, and got exposure, and what do we do for the next 10 minutes, et cetera, and that's the nature of managing operational risk in the current environment. It's certainly not eight to five. Uh, there's new players in the market, so retailers coming in, and cellular service providers and others coming. Um, and, and therefore, it's forcing us to partner with different types of people, with different approaches to uh, operational risk and different views on it right, compared to the uh, financial services sector. Uh, transparency is demanded. Okay? You would see seen a lot in the press uh, in the past around um, banking costs, and clearly the market wants to understand better what the makeup of fees, the fee structures, etc., are, and then expanded regulation. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll touch on that uh, later. So, how is that translated into some of top of mind issues? And these are not only my issues. Okay, I've looked at big events on operational risk exchange, which is, um, um, is a repository of uh, industry data across the world from the major financial institutions, dominated by banks, but. Some of the insurance companies have now put their data on as well, and other research notes. So I've, I've touched, I've, I'll, I'll go into more detail on the items in red, so I'm not going to cover it now. So fraud and financial crime is in a different dimension altogether. Happening much quicker, more sophisticated and complex, crossing borders, right? Uh, 
there's, there's no borders anymore. And from a financial crime perspective, from a money laundering and sanctions perspective, um, much harder to detect. Okay? So not using simplistic schemes anymore of just putting money into accounts and moving it offshore, etc. So it's going through small business and medium businesses. Um, as I said, looking very legitimate, etc. Um, nothing too suspicious about it, getting audited financials, but it just doesn't exist when you go to visit it. It's just a money laundering scheme, so much harder to uh, detect and, and, and um, uh, much more global, so it's not restricted to uh, specific jurisdictions anymore. So money is moving fast across the globe, a huge cost for anyone in the financial services sector and very difficult to, uh, to manage and you have to uh, have an in-depth understanding of your customer. Much easier in a, in a corporate and investment banking type environment where you have fewer large customers. Much more difficult in a retail environment where you've got millions of uh, customers. Uh, big data management, uh, I've seen data later in the presentation, so I wouldn't get into more detail, but data is becoming a, a, a big strategic opportunity for many organizations. Uh, using some of the Google um, principles in the financial services sector, so using data to understand customer behavior. Um, great opportunities uh, uh, from a, a financial performance perspective, big risk if you get it wrong from an operational risk perspective. Uh, so that's a big uh, focus area. Outsourcing and insourcing. Uh, on outsourcing, some of the big risks um, are with supplies that are dominant in their markets or are monopolies. So in South Africa, ESCOM and Telcom, and before we went uh, online, uh, with, with statements um, uh, via online channels and email, etc. South African Post Office, right, um, <laughs> as well. Uh, what we found recently, as well, very importantly, is that we do not only focus on the big suppliers. So there's a lot of small suppliers that could bring down business critical processes if they are not functioning, as well. So it's uh, it's important to look at suppliers based on the impact they have on the organization rather than the, um, the size of the contracts, or the, uh, just, just the scale of these supplies. Uh, insourcing very relevant to multinational uh, large organizations across jurisdictions. So a lot of big companies have set up production shops in low-cost hubs across the, uh, the world. Uh, it becomes an issue when you have um, 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 businesses in different jurisdictions relying on, on, on those hubs, so separate legal entities, separate boards, separate regulators, sometimes minority interests. So you have to demonstrate that insourcing arrangements are done on an arm's length basis with market prices, that you'd monitor performance of internal supplies in the same way that you'd monitor performance of outsourced supplies with similar implications. As well, and that, that's becoming a hot topic not only for boards um, um, within some of these large uh, multi-jurisdictional companies, but also with uh, regulators as well. There's other implications as well, so there's tax implications, which your transfer pricing, etc., uh, that need to be considered as well. Uh, attraction and retention of um, a talent very relevant in the African market, uh, not only in South Africa but clearly as businesses expand in the rest of the uh, continent. Certainly demand for highly skilled people exceeds supply. Uh, so it's not only driving up the costs, but it's creating um, 
uh, a risk around the tenor of people in organizations, uh, highly skilled people in some of our markets outside of South Africa are spending on average between one and a half and two years with us, with a better part of the first year just investing, investing in the development and understanding the organization, and that's a real risk. Um, you know, organization it certainly slows down strategy execution and uh, increases short-term uh, operational risk. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not only global um, multinationals that are all ancient markets in the same place, together with South African companies, but there are more local startups, uh, financial services uh, companies as, uh, as well in these individual markets. So, so I'll go into some of the areas that are marked in red. So in technology, I mean, one of the big challenges we have in, in um, financial institutions uh, with a long history and have been around for a while is legacy systems and how we deal with legacy um, systems. And this is uh, really a significant risk and in, at, at times it's a bigger risk than cyber and some of the other stuff we hear around technology that sounds better. Right? This is a big risk in organizations. In many organizations. So uh, there's different ways in dealing with legacy systems. Right? There's a local bank that decided to replace their core banking uh, system and spent somewhere between 10 to 15 billion rand and it's not always yet and it's not working. Right? There's other banks that have decided to retain, uh, um, so JP Morgan for example, retain their legacy uh, core banking platform which is 25 years old but has not built any functionality on it and decided to put a middleware on top with the functionality, with a lot of interfaces. That brings its own risk, really with a complex uh, architecture. Um, and related to that are uh, interconnecting systems uh, with legacy systems and strategic decisions as to whether you have one big system with a lot of small systems or you just have separate systems for each of the uh, businesses or you choose something in between. All of it has different types of um, of risk and all of it has an impact on system performance and system stability and security and resilience um, and, and support risks as, as well. Uh, so, so we did an exercise to work out the number of systems in each of the banks in, in South Africa and uh, the average number uh, is uh, around 500 individual systems <laughs> amongst the big four banks in, in South Africa and that's the average. Uh, and that's what we could actually find, and that's what's totally um, uh, visible. And you can imagine the risk associated with such a large uh, infrastructure to, to manage. Uh, on cyber, that's on the agenda later, so I'm not going to get into detail on, on uh, cyber. The issue with cyber is that it's not very well understood, certainly by boards and senior management. So uh, there's always an, there's no underreaction, there's always an overreaction. <laughs> so uh, a lot of education that needs, still needs to happen on cyber. So initial approaches was to just to build a wall around the organization as high as possible and don't let anyone in. That doesn't work. They'll go around underneath uh, or use some other simplistic methods. Uh, in one instance, what we've seen is somebody dropping a very nice looking memory stick outside the entrance to the bank and a staff member picking it up and saying, oh, that's nice, let me see what's in it. And <laughs> all our systems are online for everyone to see. So it can be very simple methods used as uh, well. So we, we have to assume that people are going to get in. So internal defenses are very important. So simple stuff like access control, uh, monitoring usage of our systems, looking what at, at what administrators and 
super users on systems can, can, can do, look at auto trails, uh, having, uh, looking at which ports and which systems need to be encrypted, or even laptops, and which ones shouldn't be, and uh, continuously managing those risks. Uh, look at data <coughs> leakage and what's moving out of the organization, not only through ports, but through, through emails and uploads onto Facebook, and uh, et cetera. So this is controlling all of that internally on the assumption that somebody's going to get in. Right, so on, on, on average, we have uh, 4,000 attempts a week <laughs> to, to get into organizations, to our, into our organization. No material issues thus far. Uh, and it's, this is South Africa, um, less susceptible to this uh, at this stage. Can you imagine what happens at uh, global banks where there's a huge payoff at the, um, at the end? Uh, what we've also found in cyber is that you are only as strong as your weakest link. So what financial institutions have, or banks specifically have tended to done in the past is spend a lot of money in their big operations where they could afford it, lock everything down and get it done, but then somebody just goes to one of your smaller operations, less affordable, um, weaker infrastructure, and that gets in through there. Because inadvertently they are connected to the um, global group. And there's various reasons for cyber, so I know um, some people do it for financial benefit, or corporate espionage, or political reasons, and just for fun, right? And some people just do it for, um, they have a view on, on, on something, or uh, principle, like those with the Ashley Madison accounts here, or, or <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So, the uh, probability is that one of you at least has an Ashley Madison account. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, regulatory demand, this is obvious, and uh, I agree with my, uh, previous round of speakers, it should not be done purely for compliance perspective. We need to understand the reasons for regulations, and most regulations are out there to enforce uh, strong risk management in an uh, organization, and that's the way we need to uh, approach it. Right? So they, uh, no doubt the regulations uh, in scale are becoming more demanding. We're looking at a wider range of, of issues, uh, sort of greater focus on, on customers, uh, or business continuity and recovery and resolution. Uh, planning, uh, greater focus on um, uh, capital health for individual jurisdictions as opposed to at a, at a group level uh, or conglomerate level. Um, certainly greater influence on business strategy than was in the past. Uh, in the past it was very operational in nature, but certainly now impacting uh, where, uh, what kind of businesses, uh, uh, financial services goes, goes after and what they don't go after. A great punitive actions from regulators, and I have a slide later with some of uh, examples, of some of the fines and penalties uh, globally. A big issue, uh, certainly in the banking markets, is one size fits all, so a copycat approach to regulations. And it's normally developing markets taking global regulations into some markets where it just does not make sense from a commercial, or even an implementation perspective, purely because of infrastructure. Um, and greater scrutiny. So more invasive, uh, more on-site reviews, more collaboration with external auditors and internal auditors, uh, and that's, that's increasing. Uh, so typical regulators generally starts off at best uncomfortable, uh, no matter what you tell them. So there will, will always be <laughs> uh, scrutiny from regulation, regulators. Uh, well, one, another big point is regulators are starting to talk to each other more. So in the banking sector last year, uh, it was the first banking college of regulators held. 
So they looked at all the um, banking regulators, uh, uh, regulators that uh, regulate each of the big four banks across all the markets in which they operate and called all of them together <laughs> and started to discuss what each other know about, uh, knows about the uh, organization and as expected, um, I tend to very, be very conservative and take the worst case view amongst all of them. Right. Uh, so, uh, and then that's, that just perpetuates regulatory scrutiny and punitive uh, measures that, uh, that they've taken. Uh, the trick, though, is, uh, as was previously said, is to treat this as good risk management practices, engage with regu regulators early enough while in drafting stage as opposed to uh, being reactive, and more specifically from an operational risk perspective is to build compliance to these regulations into business processes rather than both bolting it on onto businesses or business processes. Uh, it's, if it's bolted on, it's not sustainable. Right? And it's going to fail and it's going to be costly. It needs to be seamless and invisible to the uh, people in the front line. They do not need to know that they're doing it for regulatory purposes. They need to know they're doing it for good, uh, as a good business practice. Right? And the only way to do that is to make it business as usual and it's in the design of your processes, etc. And then finally, culture and conduct risk. Uh, I, mean, I must admit, didn't receive the focus that it should from an operational risk discipline perspective until two to three years ago, following some fairly significant events in the um, uh, market. And at, at Barclays, uh, we've got a separate framework for conduct risk. Uh, we. Um, there's only two banks, uh, two big global banks that uh, have separate frameworks. It's Barclays and uh, RBS. Uh, and basically, it, the, uh, there's two uh, major causes of, of conduct risk um, um, in an organization. It either could be bad judgment or bad calls or inappropriate calls. Or it could be a catastrophic operational failure in the business. Right, uh, so it's how you execute uh, operational risk. And I've got some of the uh, fines and penalties and cost of customer restitution globally. I've put it in dollars and pounds, unfortunately, because I can't use I gave this presentation in on Monday, and if I put the RAND figure, it would have been inaccurate <laughs> today. So, <laughs> so the bottom line is 600 billion RAND worth of fines and um, restitution, customer restitutions on this page. And I haven't even included everything. So uh, mortgage crisis in the U.S. is not included here. The forex rigging issues are not included here. And certainly all the um, sanctions and anti-money laundering breaches, which standard chartered, et cetera, are not included here. So the number is astronomically higher. Uh, Bank of America budgeted 12 billion pounds for, for uh, 12 billion dollars for fines and, and penalties for 2015. That's what's budgeted for and they expect. Uh, kind of asking for the uh, fines. <laughs> Uh, one of the most significant one that is probably relevant to the audience uh, in this room is uh, payment protection insurance in the UK. The, the bulk of the cost there is uh, customer uh, restitution. Um, and it seems silly now in hindsight that you would sell, for example, um, unemployment insurance to a retired person who's not working, but that's, that's what happened and that's what was in the fine print and that's what the banks made. Uh, so in the insurance companies and some of the banks made a lot of money on as part of a bundle of products <laughs> that the individuals did not understand what they were 
purchasing. We don't know why they bought it, but clearly it's because they um, did not see, uh, as I mentioned before, transparency of the costs in the contracts that they've um, uh, purchased. And I, I believe that this is going to escalate, and it's going to escalate in our African markets and certainly almost more, in more immediate term in our South African market. Probably not matching these figures, but certainly much higher than what we've seen today. We've seen it outside the banking sector, um, competition tribunal imposing uh, some fairly harsh uh, penalties in the bread uh, sector and the construction sector, but uh, I think this will migrate shortly to the financial services sector as well. Uh, so uh, again, just to um, reiterate from a culture and conduct perspective, tone from the top, uh, accountability, effective challenge to, from the second and third line of defense and appropriate incentives. And I just want to touch on the incentives for a bit. So um, from an EU and UK perspective, uh, the um, regulators in those jurisdictions kind of proposed to kind of Things kind of told the banks uh, that um, are domiciled as, uh, and which act as home regulators in those, uh, in those jurisdictions. Um, but they need to implement fairly prescriptive remuneration practices in those organizations. So there's a, there's a cap on variable remuneration. There's a very precise definition of variable remuneration to ensure that nobody gets around that. Um, there's uh, deferred bonus schemes. Uh, in those organizations as well. Uh, and very recently, and added as well, is uh, clawback arrangements with employees, even if they have left the organization. Right, so a legal clawback of between seven to 10 years on, on remuneration should something come up um, uh, subsequent to them leaving or subsequent to them being paid out. Uh, so this is getting really uh, serious. And if the financial sector um, does not uh, appropriate to respond to this, they will be forced to respond in ways that they probably prefer not to right, by, by these kind of uh, measures. Okay, so I'll, I'll wrap up there and I'll start backwards. So just to summarize, tone from the top, critical, executive ownership, uh, very important in a complex environment to keep your risk management steps simple and certainly agile as technology plays a bigger part. Uh, educating senior management and boards on some of the risks such as cyber and more complex fraud risks are important. And uh, the need to proactively engage with um, uh, regulators either to influence regulations uh, or to implement it in a, within a reasonable time scale to make it business as usual in our organization is, um, is paramount. And what I didn't mention, which is very relevant here, is operational risk needs to be also integrated with other risk types. So as mentioned previously, this operational risk and credit risk, market funding, insurance, underwriting, there's operational risk all over the place, so it should not be looked at as a one-dimensional risk. It can really happen anywhere at any point in time. So that's what I have to say. I'll take questions from the, from the floor. Okay, so currently in Barclays, and we are really looking at this um, 
at the moment, all the regulators told us not to change any of our capital models for the next nine months. But what the big banks, the big four banks do, and I think investment is, uh, Investec is going down this route as well, is at the moment we utilize key risks or risk scenarios, extreme risk scenarios, as a primary measure to, to estimate our capital. So we currently um, estimate the impact of our most extreme scenarios by risk type at a 1 in 7, 1 in 25, and 1 in 100 level. And then we extrapolate that to a 1 in 1,000. And we decide based on that, on the assumption that our current risk management techniques and what we've budgeted for does not cater for those scenarios. We hold capital for those scenarios in our model. Uh, when formulating those scenarios, we certainly look at um, internal loss data, external loss data. So unfortunately, in, um, in Africa, the, the loss data is fairly thin at the moment. But what we do do is use global loss data and scale that down to more appropriate uh, levels. And, and then we, we also look at what kind of uh, issues may have perpetuated themselves in the wider industry or internally that may not have resulted in losses at this point. Maybe we are lucky that will also factor into the model. So we do it by risk type. So we've got 16 risk types in, in operational risk ranging from technology, cyber, information and data risk, uh, some of the more complex ones to some, some of the simpler ones such as physical security, property type, um, risk payment, people risk. and um, uh, and, and that forms the basic driver of our, of our operas capital. Now, currently in Barclays, um, Africa, South African um, businesses, most of our South African businesses use the capital model uh, to quantify capital, but our, our operations outside of South Africa and some of our other operations use uh, either the basic indicator approach or the standardized approaches, which are simpler more one-dimensional me uh, measures of capital. So it's normally a percentage of gross income by business line. So if it's a trading business, higher percentage of gross income is perceived to be higher risk. If it's a transactional business, perceived to be lower risk, lower percentage of gross income. That's normally done in our smaller operations or where local regulators do not support an AMA model. Uh, so that's the arrangement with the sub across the industries cannot implement an AMA model in any jurisdiction in which you operate in unless the local regulator adopts the AMA approach for the market. And that's just because of local oversight. Uh, all the banks have, by the way, have also got an add-on. <laughs> so irrespective of what the AMA number comes up on, there's a minimum capital requirement which cannot be less than 85% of the standardized approach. And I, I know for a fact that if you look at the financial reports of all the banks, all of the AMA models are currently reflecting a lower number, <laughs> which means apart from for risk management purposes, and there's no other, other risk measurement benefits of actually having a more complicated um, capital model. But certainly it's useful for risk management. Thank you, Coach. My name is Arthur Alstrom. I'm mentioned the LIBOR manipulation. That's affected the whole market. You get trillions of dollars in the interest rate swaps, etc. Has Barclays actually addressed that particular issue? It's really difficult. You've got to get out to the guy right at the bottom. It's a bit of an idea of how you actually address manipulation like that. Uh, so they, at the time that it happens, and Barclays had, at that point, 
proactively disclose that matter to the market before any other other banks, and that's the reason uh, eventually the fines and penalties are much lower than our counterparts. Uh, so, so you are right. Uh, very detailed investigations was done at a trader level, right? So it was not at a desk level or at, uh, at a very um, aggregate level, but each trader was investigated um, individually, and that's the only way you actually get to the bottom of it. Um, clearly, it, uh, it would only be successful through uh, collaboration with other players in the market. So at the time that Barclays had disclosed it, it was fairly obvious that other players in the market were aware of it um, uh, as well. Um, and, and all of them have subsequently gone through a similar review. Clearly, the, uh, Barclays was the guinea pig in terms of the approach to the investigation, which was overseen by the regulators on an ongoing basis and the other uh, banks involved went through a similar process. Very difficult to quantify because somebody could have taken out a home loan based on a LIBOR rate and we don't know whether they may or may not have taken out and at an individual level we don't know whether they should or should not be uh, compensated or not. So, so most of the uh, fines and, and penalties and for some of our corporate institutions destitution was based purely on negotiation rather than any scientific method. Uh, okay. uh, it's, by the way, the root cause is a culture issue and a conduct issue. It's not an operational matter. My name is Gary Pelson. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned um, operational risk appetite. Yes. How do you actually go about deciding how much appetite you've got for operational risk? How do you express it? Okay, so, we, we, so firstly, we currently measure appetite both on a financial and non-financial basis. So from a financial perspective, uh, we have certain loss metrics. So we've, we've got a, um, a percentage of gross income that we, uh, uh, that we deem acceptable to lose through to operational risk losses. We've, we also measure um, uh, operational risk uh, losses uh, against benchmarks in the uh, industry as well across our different markets and the qualitative measures are, are, are exactly what I've mentioned up there. We um, work at our appetite and qualitative measures per risk type. So for technology we'll uh, very specifically say um, what's the um, uptime on specific systems, what kind of performance do we expect from certain systems. None of it is 100%. It's impossible to have it in 100%. It's too costly. So somebody in Ghana might say, I'm happy with 90, and somebody in South Africa on a core banking platform says, I want 99.5, and the 0.5 must be after business hours. So it's fairly granular. We've got 160 metrics that we use to uh, manage non-loss non related um, appetite. This is done by risk type but agreed with all the businesses. Right? Because if we do move out of appetite, it's them that need to spend the money to bring it back within appetite. So it's done bottom up. We aggregate it and it's approved by our board on, a, on an annual basis. Clearly during the year if we do expand into new markets, that's extrapolated into the um, new markets as well. Uh, different businesses may have um, different appetite but the aggregate is actually um, one that's agreed at our um, at our board. Uh, we do not have appetite for certain things. Zero. So intentional breach of regulations, um, intention, intentional issues around how we deal with conduct risk or, or treating customers fairly. So there's certain broad statements that we have 
uh, in, our, in our appetite proposal to businesses where we actually have zero appetite. <laughs> so it's, uh, we don't have, don't have discussions around appetite there, it's just do not do these, uh, uh, these things. Right, I think we're running a bit over. So um, thanks everybody, just give them a hand. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>